wife and I are going to be extending some hospitality to the young adults tomorrow night. The young adults will be coming over to our house. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be smoking out some, uh, let me finish that sentence. You know, some pulled pork and some tri-tip for the young lads uh, that are part of the young adults ministry and uh, sharing a short message with them. But, But the reason we're doing that is because we personally and as a church community, we believe in the next generation. We want to invest in the next generation. Another evidence of that is the fact that we are launching for the first time our 7 p.m. service tonight. And it will go on in perpetuity. I love that my wife cheered because... I'm gone at 7 o'clock, and it's a difficult time of night, 52 weeks, or 52 nights a year. But she cheered. You all heard it. So, but, you know, that's going to be a space for us to pour into those individuals who either can't make it to a Sunday gathering in the morning. Maybe there are individuals who don't feel comfortable in what they would think is a traditional church setting. There's nothing different about our 7 p.m. Still preaching the Word, still worshiping, but just under the cover of darkness, I just feel like some people feel like... All right, I'll take a step toward what this might be. And we're cool with that. Fine, let's take a step toward them as well and create a space where they can feel comfortable. And, and certainly we believe it's going to be a space for the next generation. And I just want to say again, we believe and we want to invest in the next generation. It just seems like I've lived long enough now at 35. And I had some scoffers last service. We got some more scoffers. Watch it, all right? I know who you are, you know. But, but truly, I've lived long enough to see the generations, you know, come and go, and every generation complains about the next. Every single one. I got complained about, and then I'm, and my peers are complaining about the Gen Zers, and then they're complaining about, I don't even know what comes next. No one does. And, and guys, I don't understand TikTok or anything like that, all right? I don't, I don't understand the world, but I know that to be cynical about who's coming next is just not the way. I know that's how your parents' generation was, your generation was. Jesus invested in the next generation. He took these teenagers, these early 20-somethings, and he said, I'm going to see something in you and bring out something in you that God's doing that you don't even see for yourself. And that's the kind of attitude we want to have here. Please, Don't be cynical. Please invest in this next generation as we collectively do that together. You know, it doesn't always turn out well, though. In the case of Jesus, they they let him down, even though he poured a lot into them. We're going to see that in Matthew chapter 26. It's okay. Even as we see a a picture of weakness, we're going to see Jesus' strength in this passage, too. It's not all negative. But last week, Brian Sumner did a great job taking us through the Last Supper, speaking about this invitation that Jesus extends to all of us to sit at the table, to join him, to be in fellowship with him through his own sacrifice. And that that commitment that Jesus was making at the Last Supper was real and genuine and deep. And it's going to be proved true as we move through our study the next couple weeks as we look toward the cross. Now, as Jesus was making this commitment that was very deep and genuine to his followers, it's extended to us today, anyone who would have faith in him. The reciprocation by the disciples, there's a lot of like promises and a lot of boasting and a lot of enthusiasm, but when it gets tested, it ends up showing itself as being very vacant. That is the response of the disciples. Let's read this together. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 31. The verses will be on the screens. Then Jesus told them, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. 
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Let's pause there this morning. When we began this reading in in verse 31, the disciples are on their way to the Mount of Olives. It's an area that's just east of the Temple Mount. And it's a place known for its ancient olive groves. And it's a place where they would actually crush the olives to make olive oil. Gethsemane, the place that they enter into in verse 35, actually literally means olive press. And it's kind of a wonderful, beautiful, ironic metaphor for what Jesus is going to go through in this very place. The same way, you know, you'd crush these, you know, olives to get the oil from them. So Jesus is going to be crushed in his soul and in his spirit in this garden. And clearly he's going to be experiencing that without the help of his friends. We see that theme from the very first verse that we read. Jesus declares to his disciples, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. Like that Old Testament passage that he cites, the shepherd is going to be struck by God and the sheep are going to be scattered he says, even so, I'm going to rise and I will go on ahead of you to Galilee. I'm going to meet you there in Galilee. Now, naturally, you would think they would begin to say to each other, like, we've got to take notice of what Jesus is saying. You know, this is going to be a, a big night. Everything they heard at the Last Supper, everything they're hearing right now, you'd think they'd start preparing their minds and hearts for what's going to occur in Galilee. But instead of receiving Jesus' words at face value, Peter's zeal gets a voice, right? In verse 33, he says, even if all these other dirt bags fail you, I'll still be there. You know, that's my paraphrase. That's the Andrew Living Translation or something like that. Aren't you glad you don't read that every morning? But you you see him really throwing everybody under the bus. You you will all fall away on account of me. And, And Peter goes, no, no, no. Even if all these guys that we've done a lot of years with, you know, my brothers here, even if they all fail you, that's not going to be me. But here's what happens. When you go out on a limb in pride, you get special attention. 
you get the sort of special attention that you don't want. Because God gives grace to the humble, but He's against the proud, right? So Jesus says directly to Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. You, Peter. You know, he was very general in the beginning. He said, you all fall away on account of me. And Peter goes, I won't. And Jesus has to then go, you will. And you won't just do it once and then correct yourself like it was a mistake. It's going to be once, twice, thrice. You're going to disown me. You're going to put it in bold. And then you're going to double underline it. Like, that's the depth of your disowning, Peter. But Peter doesn't even believe he's capable of doing something that's that grave of an error. He says he'll even go to death if necessary, not knowing that this isn't just like some fringe possibility. You know, that's the way he sort of says, like, I'll even go to death. Like, Peter, that's like the, that's the point of entry in this evening. Like, that's what it's going to entail. It'd be like me saying to my kids and my wife, hey, we're going to Disneyland today and I don't care what it costs. I don't care if it's $1,000 we're going today. All my kids would say to me, yeah, Dad, it, it's $1,000 for a family of seven to go to Disneyland in the modern world. Like, that's without the park hopper. With the park hopper, it's 1800 bucks, Dad. You know, in that scenario, like, I'm making this bold claim. I'm boasting. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Peter doesn't even have any idea what he's talking about, what he's claiming. But, you know, not to be outdone by Peter's ignorance, all the other disciples, right, they start chiming in and making their own empty promises to Jesus. That's what we hear. What we're left with at the end of this scene is this really hollow image of like this spiritual pep rally of human willpower. You can almost see the disciples like getting so stoked, playing off each other, chest bumping each other about what the night's going to entail. And here Jesus is trying to prepare them for what's ahead and really the pain that he's going to undergo. And they can't even hear step one, stage one of what he's letting them in on. You can almost picture Jesus like retreating into himself. Sort of like, I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been there many times. You make an offhand joke to someone and you just see them wilt. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't timed well. It wasn't placed well. It was heavy-handed. They just kind of wilt. Or, you know, someone's telling you something important and you cut them off. You start talking over them and they just sort of like, you know, shut down. That's sort of the way I see this scene ending. Jesus is trying to bring the disciples into this experience and they're all just making too much noise to even hear what he has to say to them. So this is how this night is going to go. That's an early indication, that early scene. And turning to the scene in Gethsemane in verse 36, these contrasting portraits of Jesus and his disciples, they deepen. You know, we've got this portrait of spirit-empowered willingness and submission and awareness of God's work. And at the same time, it's contrasted with this portrait of human willpower weakness and blindness in his disciples. And when they arrive in the garden, they're all there together, but Jesus whittles it down to just his inner band of Peter, James, and John. And we hear this repetition twice, that Jesus was sorrowful, troubled. The way he says it to his disciples and friends, this inner circle, Peter, James, and John, he says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I'm so weighed down by the cross, by this cup of wrath that I'm going to drink, the separation I'm going to have with the Father, this moment where all the sin, past, present, and future is going to fall on me. This is crushing me. The, the sorrow and the trouble that I feel, it's killing me. 
You know, in, in the modern, you know, Christian evangelical world, this would be a time for someone to pipe up and say, well, Jesus, don't trust your emotions. Don't be led by your emotions. You know, we devalue emotions all the time. Don't devalue emotions, right? He's not being led by his emotions. He's just filled with sorrow and grief. It's real. What he's experiencing. We've got to really consider this, what Jesus is saying, because for so many of us, I think we look at Jesus through this very clinical and technical lens, like, like he's above feeling all the time. You know, we picture him saying this with like some British narrator's voice, right? Like, oh, I'm troubled, you know? Like, ooh, I feel a bit of something in my soul. Aren't you glad I don't do accents that often? But honestly, like, I just think people think that Jesus was just this unfeeling individual. When he says this, he means this. He's fully human. He's saying... I am so filled with sorrow. I'm so troubled, it's killing me. And he's saying this to his friends. Stay with me. Keep watch. I mean, now we know why Jesus whittled it down to that inner circle, those three individuals. He wanted his friends to be with him in his time of unimaginable grief and sorrow. But it's a support he won't get. Going on ahead, he falls on his face and he prays in verse 39. My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Interestingly enough, this is an open-ended prayer. When Jesus goes before his father in heaven, he doesn't say, well, God, you already know what's going to happen. You just do it however you're going to do it. He also doesn't go on the opposite end of the spectrum and say, well, here's my personal preference, God. I command you in authority as your son to do it this particular way. No, what we see with Jesus is a dialogue that he's having with his father. If this is possible, please let this go a different way. If not, I set aside my will and I receive yours. You see how this whole preparation for the cross was not this automatic thing for even Jesus. He had to go through some things. He had to get to a place where he was ready in his heart and mind to face what he was going to face. Jesus was not a righteousness robot. Again, I think we detach him from his humanity, and it makes it very unreal the way that we're supposed to walk in faith with God. Uh, He's a righteousness robot. We're all going to be robots. We're just going to do what we're supposed to do day in and day out. It's not going to be a process for us. No, guys. It was dynamic. And because it was dynamic for Jesus, that's what makes him such a great example for every single one of us. Because he is the, he's the prototype, right? He's the original. He's the ultimate. He's the ideal of what it looks like to live a spirit-empowered humanity, relying on the power of God to accomplish the will of God. And the disciples are a shining example of the opposite. They're all promises and zeal and commitments, and they're running on their own strength, and consequently, they're unable to keep their eyes open in Jesus' moment of greatest need for even one hour, Jesus points out in verse 40. So you're telling me these guys are going to die for Jesus, but they can't even keep their eyes open for one hour for Jesus, right? Now it's starting to unravel. All that self-confidence, all that boasting, all that strength that they have, that they're rallying around. 
You're going to die for Jesus, but you can't keep your eyes open for one hour for Jesus. This is a sort of personal blindness that I've had many times in my life. It was a little bit over a year ago on Memorial Day that our neighbors down the street participated in their annual tradition of performing a sort of extreme injure yourself CrossFit workout with a bunch of their friends. This is how they spend their day off, not how I spend my day off. Uh, but they're down there and they're all working out, shaming the rest of us neighbors, maybe not intentionally, unintentionally, our insecurities are coming out. And I say to one of my other neighbors, I say, these guys, you know, they're doing the 100 pull-ups, the 500 sit-ups, the run around the block with the weighted vest. Gosh, they're doing the whole thing, right? And I say to my neighbor, let's secretly train this year so that next Memorial Day, they're bringing all their equipment out front, we're bringing all the equipment out front, and like running down the street and doing the whole thing, just shocking them, right? So I say, oh, we're totally going to do this this next year. Well, guys, Memorial Day happened, right? What was going on at my house? I, I might as well have been in the pool. I mean, floating around. Because I tried to run a mile in this last year, and I said, nah, not doing it. Just one mile. Just one mile. But you see, in the moment, oh, I got this thing. We're, next year, we're going to show them. I'm going to complete this entire exercise. One mile, and I say, nah, I quit. But you understand, that's the power of our boasting, of our self-confidence, of the sort of claims that we can make, of our pride and self-deception. What's Jesus' prescription for dealing with that, for empty boasting and self-deception? In verse 41, he's telling them, keep watch. He goes to them and wakes them up and says, keep watch. And he doesn't mean keep your eyes open. He says, keep your awareness open, your spiritual awareness, your self-understanding, your understanding of what God is up to in these moments through prayer. He's saying pray. The Spirit, through prayer, is able to make you willing, is able to get you through these moments, is able to help you see yourself and see the situation that's going on so you don't fall into temptation. But the flesh, your own resources, your own heart and mind, you rely on your own strength, it's going to be weakness. It's going to fail. And truly this principle is proved in the positive through Jesus' example. Because he goes away a second time and a third time praying in verse 42, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. And you see the nuance, the change in the way that Jesus is praying this second and third time. It's almost as if he's subtly turning this corner. of He's presented his request to God. He hasn't heard about another option. There isn't another way. He's beginning to understand. He's relying on the Holy Spirit, right? He's, he's, he's awake to what's happening. And so he's receiving the empowerment to accept the will of his Father. He's the only way to atone for sin, past, present, and future. He's got to drink the cup of God's wrath, but he's coming to it. While the disciples snooze the one hour that they were tasked with staying awake. And just like that, the time is up. The betrayer, Judas, is said to be approaching. What do we walk away with from this passage? Well, like I said, I believe these are two portraits. This portrait of Jesus. The Spirit-empowered willingness and submission. And then you've got the disciples, right? This picture of human willpower and ultimately weakness. 
And what differentiates the two is prayer. Jesus is prayerful through the whole experience while the disciples are sleeping. So I want to speak about prayer for a few moments. If you're a note taker, this is a good time to take some notes. First thing I want to assert is that prayer is the purest way to access the empowerment of God. Prayer is the purest way to access the empowerment of God. When Jesus... The Son of God Himself was facing a task that was so challenging, a trial that was so difficult, He said, I'm troubled and I'm filled with sorrow to the point I could die. What did He do? Where did He turn? What was His practice? It was to pray. And He was given what He required to face the circumstances that were ahead. Countless Christians have discovered the power of prayer through similar circumstances, when they've been taken to a trial and to a breaking point, a lot of people will give the testimony of the worst times of their life when they were forced into places of prayer and they discovered an empowerment by God that they didn't know otherwise. And that could even redeem trials for people where they say, I'm so glad I went through that because now I discovered the power of God in the midst of challenging times. It's unfortunate that that resource it seems we only tap into when we're placed in the breaking point, when we require it the most. It's available all the time. I shared this in Soul Restore. It was a one-time teaching I did midweek. If you're going through a tough time, I encourage you, search for that on our YouTube page, Soul Restore. I said, when we hit trials and when we hit hard times, we try to diagnose it every which way. Right? We do everything we possibly can. Well, maybe I need to exercise more. Maybe I need to eat better. Maybe I need to talk to more people. Maybe I need to go to therapy. You know, I need to do that CrossFit exercise. I need to be gluten-free. You know, you check all the boxes, and they're all good things. And at the end, you look great. You're looking great now. I mean, you did all the stuff, right, for your personal wellness. But what if it still doesn't solve what's going on? Because oftentimes it doesn't. I say it's then when we usually go to the last thing, which should have been the first thing. The thing we should have done from the outset and all along, which is to pray. Which is to turn to our Father in heaven. You know, when the early church was persecuted in Acts 4, they prayed. When Peter and Silas were in prison, they prayed. When Paul had that tormenting thorn in the flesh, what did he do? He prayed. Let's live into that. To have the first thing we do be prayer so we can be empowered for what we'll face. Two, I want to assert this. Prayer is the basis of our personal relationship with God. Now, you could phrase this a couple different ways. Jesus' work on the cross is the basis for our personal relationship with God. And only through the cross do we even have a relationship with God. You know, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the basis of our personal relationship with God. The Spirit that we receive through faith in Jesus. But the way I mean it when I say it this way... It's like, this is the basis of your ongoing relating. If this is a relationship, prayer is the basis of that personal relationship that you have with God. When Jesus taught us to pray corporately, He said, I want you to start this way, our Father. But do you understand, that's that's personal for each of us. When Jesus went to go pray alone, what did He say? How did He start? He said, my Father. And we all need to go to those places in our own life where I'm in prayer and I'm saying, my Father. I'm calling on my Father. You're calling on your Father. You're saying, my Father in heaven. That's where that personal relationship comes in. You know, there are a lot of people who do a lot for God, but they don't know God. 
because they don't call on him as father. There are a lot of people who know a lot about God, but they don't know God because they're not relating to God in prayer. Some people don't see the use. They say, well, God already knows what he's going to do before I even pray to him. Or they say, you know, I know enough about the Bible, so I already know what I'm supposed to do. I got my marching orders. I don't need to talk to God. Well, then what about Jesus? Jesus is the Word. He's the incarnate Word of God. He, he can look into the future. He can see the future better than any of us, right? And He still went to His Father. If you don't see the use in going to your Father in heaven in prayer, what do you think heaven's about? Heaven is an eternal relationship. It's not an eternal Bible study. Heaven is not an eternal service project. Thank God. Right? It's an eternal relationship. But some of us are doing so many things and thinking so many things. We're participating in so many things, but we're not even just relating to our Father in heaven. It's sort of like you see with marriages. You know, marriages... You know, you've got to pay the bills, you've got to work, you've got to raise the kids, you spend all this time and energy on all these things, kids leave the house and they're like, who are you? I don't even know if I like you. And they're like, I don't know if I like myself, I'm so out of touch, right? I've been doing so many things over these years. That could be the same thing with our faith. And you know, I'm not trying to shame anybody who's in that place in their marriage or in their faith. Okay, well start today, start building that relationship. You know, even if it's awkward, you've got to push through that. Let's go to our Father. Let's relate just as Jesus did. He brought everything. How? How do we pray? Some of us are intimidated. Some of us don't feel like we have that skill. Let me demystify prayer for you for a few moments. And, and, and you know, nothing drives me more insane as a pastor than when people mystify the things of the Bible. Because Jesus is constantly going around and he's putting things on the bottom shelf for people like, you can do this. And then we come around and we go, okay, let me put that back on the top shelf so that I look special in front of the eyes of other people. Like, prayer is one of those things. But let me tell you, prayer is simply a dialogue. A dialogue with God. People fear prayer, right? They fear praying out loud because they think it's a fancy skill. Guys, it's a skill you all have. Do you talk? If you can talk, then you have the skill to be able to pray. And sure, there are some professional Christians, that's what they make it seem to be, who want to dress it up as this fancy thing through all their eloquence of speech. But do you understand, there's verses specifically placed in the Bible to call out individuals who think that God cares about eloquence of speech in prayer. Those are not the people that you need to take your cues from. God is putting those people on blast in the Bible. Consider when Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, what did he tell us to pray? He said, I want you to talk about your daily needs, the things that you're facing today, the simple things. I want you to talk about your weaknesses and your mistakes, the things where you've fallen short. I want you to talk about the ways that people have fallen short in your life and the things that have harmed you. And I want you to talk about temptation and what you're facing ahead, the trials and troubles. I, I want you to talk about my kingdom and my will. The things of most ultimate meaning. So when you survey that simple prayer that Jesus gives us, what are we supposed to talk to God about? Everything. Talk to your Father in heaven about everything. It's really that simple. Do you know who wants to make you feel intimidated about praying? Who wants to make you feel like it's something that you can't do? 
who, who wants to make you feel like, oh, I'm going to say the wrong words, not going to come out right, my voice is going to stumble when other people hear it. You know who wants to keep you from praying with your coworkers and your community group and your spouse and for your kids and with your roommates? It's Satan. Of course Satan would want to keep you from being empowered in your spiritual life. Of course Satan would want to keep you from knowing your Father in heaven, from having a relationship with God. And so he's going to hang that over your head. And I say that specifically to a lot of men in the room. I mean, we're going to have spiritual breakthrough in this church community when we pray. It's not complicated. The more we're hearing from God and speaking to God, the more powerful our spiritual lives are going to be. Some people would say, well, drop the bar. Don't make people feel uncomfortable here. We sh- Don't pray out loud. Don't have people pray for each other. It's church. It's church. This is where we got to do it. There's not going to be another place that we do it if we don't do it here. You know, oh, somebody might overhear me and think I'm not saying it the right way. That's exactly the sort of unspiritual person you don't need to be taking cues from. Speak. Say it simply. Stumble over your words. And dialogue with God. It really, truly is that simple. But also take time to listen. Prayer is a listening exercise. Like any good dialogue, and they may be very rare in our world. You may not have a lot of people listening to you, but... Let me tell you, a good dialogue is about listening as much as it is about speaking. Jesus listened. He says, if this is possible, but if not, then your will be done. He's speaking and listening. This is one of the distinguishing characteristics of Christianity, is that we have our will, and we have the things that we're requesting, and then we're listening and waiting for God's will, for what He would have for us. Everybody in the world, if your prayer life is just always requests all the time, that's everybody else in the world. Everybody else is throwing their wishes out on the wind and to the universe and, you know, the law of attraction. I'm going to manifest this in my mind and it's going to have a request, 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 all their will. That's everybody. Everybody's got a plan for their finances. Christians put that before the Lord and then listen for his will and direction. Everybody's got a plan for their relationships. Christians take their relationships, they place it before God, they say, well, this is my plan, what do you see? And they listen. They have ideas for the future. Everybody has plans for the future. Christians place those plans before the Lord and then listen and hear what His will is. If our will is getting done all the time, let me promise you, God's will is rarely, if ever, being done. And finally, prayer is more effective than willpower and passion. You know, I've, I've seen both, you know, willpower and passion, and people who live empowered by the Spirit. You know, people who rely on their own strength and people who rely on the strength that God provides. I've been both people. And often those who are boasters and loud and grandstanders, those are the people who are usually most influential in the world and in the church. And it's unfortunate. They're people like Peter. Peter stands up and says, I'll go to the death for you even if all these suckers fail you. And then they all say, well, we're going to be as blind as he is. And that's how it works in community because when you got the grandstander and you got the guy with all this ultimate confidence or this woman who's just boasting about all the things that are going to happen, they go, wow, that's a visionary. That's somebody who's a leader. But did they pray? Are they pushing their agenda or have they submitted their agenda to the will of God? That's the key. Just like our namesake passage, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, it's in prayer that we're going to be with Jesus, where we're going to see His will, and we're going to be empowered to accomplish it, and we'll bear fruit. Apart from Him, we do this in our own strength, with our own passion and zeal, it'll fail. 
It's true in our personal lives. It's true with the business. It's true with your relationships. It's true with your marriages. It's true in ministry. But we don't have to because we can go to our Father in heaven and receive the empowerment that we need. It's much more effective than human strength. So we'd be remiss if we left this morning without praying. If we talked around it and didn't practice prayer. And I realize for some of you, this is another time of prayer this morning. You already got up this morning and you prayed. and You've got time set apart every single day of the week. And for others of you, you come in here and this is your little window. This is your one moment where maybe you're going to hear from God and get enough of what you need to get through the rest of this week. And the truth is, no matter where you're coming from, there's no shame in it. God bless you that you're here. But there's more for all of us. There's more for all of us. And I want to make space for the Lord to speak and for you to speak with the Lord. And I want us to start in this simple posture of prayer, whatever it is for you. Maybe you close your eyes. Maybe you bow your head just so you can be focused. Maybe you don't do any of those things. But I want us to start in this moment just with this statement, my Father, my Father. Start there in your heart in prayer. My Father. And see where the Lord leads you in this time. Or what comes out of your heart as you speak to the Lord. Maybe maybe you're going through a time of grief and sorrow that's crushing you like Jesus did. And that's what you want to speak before the Lord. Maybe, maybe there's an empowerment in your life that you require for the tasks that you're facing that you haven't been seeking from the Lord. Maybe you're realizing you haven't seen the purpose, you haven't seen the use of prayer and you've just been doing all this work but not relating. Maybe you feel like you're a novice. I don't have the skill. Where do I even begin? you stumble through a conversation right now. Maybe maybe any one of these things. Maybe there's a plan that you've been talking about, you've been strategizing, you've got all the spreadsheets, you've, you've done all the things, but you never brought it before the Lord to ask Him, what's your will? Just begin, my Father. Spend some time in prayer.
Father, teach us to pray just like the disciples asked. Teach us to pray. There's so many times we're tapped, we're anxious, and we're so close to being able to receive the comfort and the strength that we require, but yet we're not reaching out to you. And you're right there. There's so many questions that you're ready to answer for us. There's relationships that you want to heal. There's sense that you want to make out of chaos. There's loneliness that you want to cure with your presence. So Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to rely on you to build an ever stronger relationship with you, our Father in heaven. You can make us willing. You can enable us. You can give us awareness. You can help us to see what matters most. You can filter everything else for us, Lord. So God, I pray that you'd strengthen us in our times with you. Lord, would this be a Sunday of a breakthrough for individuals, for families, for parents, for marriages? Would there be no fear, not a single solitary soul in here who's afraid to pray, to dialogue with you, that we would rely on the strength that you provide.